And again, we're reading from Luke 4, verses 38 through 44. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the, the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea, the word of the Lord. All right, continuing on in our sermon series on money, in money we trust, putting our faith where it belongs, and we're focusing throughout the sermon series on this issue of dependence, what are we really trusting in, God or our money? Of course, we know the right answer is we should be trusting in God, but the reality is we live in a world that requires us to live with money and use money. So how do we navigate this relationship between trusting in God, but then also uh, uh, living in a world that needs money? And so we've been looking at a different question uh, each week. The first week, the question that we were looking at was, what shouldn't I live for, or what shouldn't I be depending upon? And the answer, of course, is money, because it can't can't meet all of our needs. We have needs as human beings that extend beyond uh, what money can supply. Second week, last week, we looked at the positive side of that question. What should I be living for? or What should I depend upon? And the answer uh, is God's kingdom and his righteousness. And we looked at how God's righteousness doesn't just mean God's morality, but it extends out into God's covenantal priorities. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you uh, to listen to that sermon, uh, because I can't re-explain it all now. This week here, third week, we're going to press into a new question. And I think this question maybe gets to the heart, really, of this issue of money, our relationship with God, our relationship uh, to our money. And this, this question we want to answer this week is, how much should I give? We know we shouldn't trust in money. We know we should be trusting in God. We know we should be living for his purposes and seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, which is going to require us to bring some of our money to bear in that respect. But how much should we bring to bear as we seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness? How much should I give? If you're a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian here this morning, but either case, you likely have some sense even if it's a vague sense, that you should be giving away some of your money. Philanthropy is generally a good thing. Helping the homeless, sending your money to hurricane victims, other such charity organizations, you feel like this is a good thing to do. Uh, If you're religious, perhaps you give your money to religious organizations or to your local church as well or beyond. But it's possible, perhaps even likely, that many of us here don't have a really crisp, clear answer to the question, how much should I give? 
Like, what is God expecting of me in my giving? Some of us deal with this question by not dealing with the question. We just put the idea and the practice of giving out of our minds, and we don't pick it up unless some need jumps in our face, kind of waves its hands around, so to speak, and we feel obligated to do something about the need. Others of us, we have a more premeditated kind of fixed response, perhaps informed by religious convictions, and we give a set amount each week or each month that we've predetermined, and that's what we give. An entire book could be written on answering this question, how much should we give? I'm not going to do that this morning, but what I am going to do is look at the example that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 4 and how Jesus uses his limited resources to meet the needs that present themselves around him. Or we could say how Jesus uses his limited resources uh, philanthropically to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Jesus is the son of God, but Jesus, in incarnating, took upon himself the limitations of humanity, and he couldn't be everywhere all at the same time doing everything, right? Jesus had choices, too, about how to use the resources that God had given him to seek God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Jesus wasn't rich with money, but he was very philanthropic. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus was very other-centered. He had a lot of charity impulses towards the world around him. How much did he give away, as it were? And what can we learn from his example? So there are going to be three main parts to this sermon this morning, so you can track along. First, we're going to do a quick survey of four biblical examples of giving to see what we can learn from these four examples. And so we're going to look at a two in Luke and then two in Acts. Luke wrote the book of Acts, so we're really going to kind of all stay right in uh, Luke as the author. So we're going to look at four quick uh, biblical examples of giving, see what we can learn from them about this question of uh, how much we should be giving away. And then second, we're going to look primarily at Jesus' example in the text that we read already this morning in Luke chapter 4, 38 through 44, our main text. And we're going to see how Jesus navigates this question. And then I'm going to give two practical steps or two steps as we consider this question about how much uh, we try to figure out how much we should be giving. And then finally, I'm going to close with some pastoral advice. All right, so that's where we're going to go uh, this morning. So let's begin by jumping into these four biblical examples. Now, you don't need to try to track along, uh, uh, follow along, and turn to all of these. Let me just tell them to you. You're welcome to, of course. You won't get in trouble. If I hear pages moving, I will not be offended. But um, in any case, uh, let's begin in Luke 18. So we have an example in Luke 18 of a rather famous episode in, in Luke's gospel, the rich young ruler. And uh, the rich young ruler was a pious Jewish man, followed the law. He hears Jesus teaching. He's impressed with Jesus as a teacher. And when he approaches Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right, what do I got to do to get into eternal life? You seem wise, Jesus. You seem like you know what you're talking about. So what do I need to know to get eternal life? And Jesus says, well, just keep the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, oh, well, you know, I keep all the commandments, right? Which ones in particular were you thinking about? And then Jesus says this rather surprising thing to this rich young ruler. He says, all right, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me, 
and then you will have rewards and tre uh, treasures in heaven. Right? So you want to know how to keep, you want to know how to get eternal life, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man goes away sad because he had great wealth. So Jesus, to this question for the rich young man, how much should I give? Jesus' answer is everything. You got to give everything. Some of you are hoping that's not the answer to the question this morning, right? But that's the question, that's the answer to the, to the rich young ruler. So that was Luke 18. Well, just one chapter later in Luke 19, Jesus encounters another rich man, right? So this first rich man was a very pious, uh, religious rich man. The second man that he encounters is a rather unsavory character, uh, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, uh, some of you know, he was the wee little man that Jesus uh, met hiding and then trying to see him from a tree, right? Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And we don't love tax collectors in our day. They didn't love tax collectors in their day even more because tax collectors uh, made a significant portion of their income by stealing and extorting money from the common folk, all right? So tax collectors were not popular. And uh, Jesus says to the tax collector, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And Zacchaeus is so moved by Jesus, his presence, his teaching, his generosity. He's so moved by who Jesus is that he freely offers up to Jesus and by saying, I'm going to give away half of everything I own to the poor. And then if I've cheated anybody, I'm going to pay them back. Now, what is Jesus' response? We just saw the response in Luke 18 to the rich young ruler. He wanted everything. In Luke 19 with Zacchaeus, what's his response? He doesn't go, uh, no, Zacchaeus, time out. Half, that's decent. I want all of it. You're going to have to give everything you have to the poor, not just half. He doesn't say that. He says, in fact, he says, praise God, salvation has come to this house. This man, too, Zacchaeus, is also a son of Abraham. He belongs to the covenant. And so he praises Zacchaeus for offering to give away half of his income. All right, so we got the rich young ruler. How much did he have to give away? All of his income. Zacchaeus, just half of his income. And then we get, carrying on in Luke's narrative into Acts, we get to Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, the church has started, the Holy Spirit has come, all the people are gathered together who believe in Jesus, and they're sharing with each other all of their wealth so that they're able to take care of the people that uh, have uh, significant needs. And at the end of Acts chapter 4, we read that there was a man named Barnabas. Uh, Barnabas becomes a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He's a, he's a great man in the scriptures. And in Acts chapter 4, at the end, we read that Barnabas, uh, while everyone was sharing their needs, need, uh, their, uh, their goods to meet the needs, he goes and he sells one of his fields. He takes the proceeds from his fields, and he brings it to the apostles, and he puts it at the apostles' feet, and he says, just use this to help uh, the church. Take this and help the church. And so he's praised. We learn that his uh, name means son of encouragement. He's praised for this deed. It's an admirable deed in Luke, Luke Acts chapter 4. But then we get to one chapter later, and we have a similar sort of incident with Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe you have heard of them. Well, they see that it went well with Barnabas and that everyone thought highly of Barnabas when Barnabas sold one of his pieces of property and then gave it to the apostles to distribute amongst uh, the people of God. So they say, let's do the same thing. So they sell one of their pieces of property, and they take the proceeds from the property, and they give it to the apostles. Well, Peter, who is the head of the apostles, he says to Ananias, he says, well, is this the total 
of what you sold? And Ananias says, yes, it is. Now, if you stopped there, you might think that Ananias and Sapphira are about to get in trouble because the reality is it wasn't the total of what they sold. They had kept some of the money for themselves. But that really isn't the issue. Peter isn't concerned that they've kept some of the money for themselves. He says to them, why have you lied and said that this is the total of all that you've sold? And then he says to them, while the field remained unsold, didn't it remain your own? You were under no obligation to sell it. It was your field, right? And then after it was sold, wasn't the money that you got at your disposal? You were no under obligation to give all of the proceeds to us. You could have given half to us. You could have given 10%. You could have given 1%. You could have given none of it, right? It was your field to do with as you wanted. But because you've lied, then it's rejected, and Ananias and Sapphira are rejected. So we got the rich young ruler asked to give everything. Zacchaeus gives half. Barnabas gives just one field. And Ananias and Sapphira could have gotten away with not giving anything. So the punchline here is that there is not a one-size-fits-all answer to the question, how much should I give? All gave, or were asked to give, different amounts. And yet all were or would have been commended by God for whatever gift they gave. Now, you might be thinking, that doesn't help me at all. Right? I was hoping you would tell me how much I should give, and all you've told me is that there is no answer to how much I should give. Well, we've got to get a little more further into this. Right? These examples don't tell us how much to give, but they do clue us in that there isn't one right answer for everybody. There isn't just one single answer for every single one of us that is all the same answer about how much we should be giving. So let's hop to our main text. Maybe we're already there in Luke 4 and see what we can learn from Jesus' example. Maybe as this scripture was being read this morning, you were thinking to yourself, that's a very peculiar passage of scripture for a finance sermon series because money doesn't get mentioned ever in that text. And then you looked at the sermon title for help and it said the whole pie. And you're like, there's no pies in that text either. So I don't really know what's going on without any pies or money with this text. But let's see if we can figure out some relevance or application to this question of how much I should give. The context of this uh, situation that we read here in, in uh, Luke chapter 4, 38 through 44, Jesus just previously uh, has been teaching in the synagogue. And uh, he's very impressive in his teaching. And so uh, everyone's amazed at his teaching, how he teaches as one who has authority, not as those who just kind of quote the teachers of the law, but he teaches as his own authority. He's astonishing everyone. And while he's teaching, he's interrupted in the service by a demoniac, a demon-possessed man. And there's quite a kerfuffle there. Jesus drives the demon out. The man convulses, cries out, falls on the ground. And uh, everyone is amazed not only at Jesus' teaching, but also at the power that he has over the demonic spirits. So the exorcism is a pretty sensational event, and the news of the miracle-working teacher spreads throughout all the surrounding regions, and everybody is drawing over uh, to the town to find Jesus and to see what he's about. So we pick up the narrative in verse 38, after this miraculous uh, healing of the demoniac and also Jesus' teaching, we pick up the narrative there in verse 38. The same basic story that 
Luke tells here in chapter 4, Mark also tells in Mark chapter 1. And I'm going to draw a few points from Mark as well. So Jesus heads, after the synagogue, he heads over to Simon Peter's house. And he's with his disciples. And Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And so she's got a fever. So Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. She gets up. She's helping around the house then in kind of the reception to Jesus. And by this point, all of the crowds have followed Jesus over to Peter's house. And so they're clamoring around, and Jesus begins to heal them all. And so he's healing those who are sick, and he's driving out those uh, who, have, who are demon, uh, driving out the demons from those who are demon-possessed. And by nightfall, there's a pretty big crowd at Peter's house. Mark tells us that the whole city had gathered around Peter's house. So eventually, uh, night falls, and presumably things quiet down a little bit. And Jesus sneaks away uh, to a desolate place uh, early in the morning. Mark tells us that it's so early, in fact, that it hasn't even become light yet. He sneaks away in order to spend some time praying. And as the crowds begin to wake up, they realize that Jesus isn't there, and they're trying to figure out where he is. And so they, be, they, they fan out to begin searching to find him. And they locate him, and wherever he had snuck away to pray, they locate him, and they implore him to come back into the village so that there can be more of what happened yesterday. But Jesus says no. He says, I've got to keep moving on. I've got to keep Going, He declines and says he's got to go preach in other areas of Judea. Jesus' whole life was dedicated to meeting the needs of others. So if you've read the Gospels, even just one of the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus is very focused on the needs of those around him. He's not impervious to the needs of those around him. He's dedicated to seeking after God's kingdom and his righteousness. Just what he preaches, he also practices, right? God's covenantal priorities. That's what Jesus is about. And that involves people. Jesus' whole life is about people. But Jesus wasn't at the mercy of every need that presented itself to him. So even though he was captivated by the needs of others, he wasn't held captive by the needs of others. And we can see this balance all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is so attentive to those who need him, but he's not held hostage by the needs around him. It's an important distinction. Look what Jesus gives as an explanation here in Luke 4 about why he's going to move on. Verse 43. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus is referring, when he says, I was sent, he's referring to his father who sent him into the world. And Jesus is like, I've got a mission to do. I have a loyalty to God even more than I have a loyalty to you. I have a loyalty to what God wants from me even more so than what you want from me. And even though there are needs here that I could stay and keep meeting, I have to follow God's will for my life i got to do what God wants me to do. Jesus isn't at the mercy of just every need that comes at him, right? But he's, he's, he's at the mercy of God. He's following God's will for his life. He would have stayed in Peter's house for the rest of his life if that had been what God wanted from him. 
If God had sent him for the purpose of taking up and setting shop at Peter's house and letting the whole world come to him, that's what he would have done. But God didn't send him to stay in one place. God sent him to go out and to preach, to move on. So what do we learn from Jesus' example related to the question of how much should I give? Jesus here is giving to the folks in the town where he's at with Peter and Peter's mother-in-law. He's giving to those folks. How much should he keep giving to those folks? As long as the needs are present, he should keep giving? Well, he'd be there a long time as the whole world comes to him, right? No, he, he doesn't just answer that question based on the amount of needs before him. He answers that question in relation to God's will for his life. So to the same question that we have about how much should we use our money to meet needs? How much should we give? It's really the same answer as Jesus had. As much as God wants you to. That's the answer. How much money should you give? As much money as God wants you to give. Or we could say it like this. As much money as God wants you to give. Because God's got a different answer to that question for your life than he does for the person maybe sitting next to you, than he does for me. It's maybe not the same answer for every question. It's both challenging and simple at the same time. It'd be simple to say to everyone, well, it's just kind of a one-size-fits-all. Everyone give X percentage of your income, and you're good. Right? It's just kind of a stand, like a membership fee to a gym. Everyone pays the same getting in. Right, but scaled to income levels so it's percentage-wise. Right? But it's not like that. Right? We don't have just one one-size-fits-all answer. The New Testament isn't so tidy and impersonal as that. Jesus' example, the examples of those that came before that we looked at, the four other biblical examples. Right? Everybody's got a unique posture and relationship with God and relationship with money that they're called to. So... Let me give you two steps as you consider what it is that God might have for you to do with your money. Two steps drawn from Jesus' example, both here in this text and then more broadly uh, throughout the Gospels. Step one, surrender your whole life to God. You want to know what God wants you to do with your money. The very first thing that you have to do is you've got to surrender your entire life to God. Your whole life needs to be surrendered to God. Jesus' example teaches us that we should surrender every aspect of our lives to God. Every philanthropic capacity that Jesus had was fully surrendered to his Father's will. So when he came into the world, he came into the world with the goal of ministering to the needs of those around him. But even above that, he came into the world committed to honoring God above all else. The Garden in Gethsemane, that first Good Friday, I think, was the fullest, clearest expression of Jesus' submission of his will to God's will above all else. Jesus is there in the garden. He's not in his natural impulses wanting to go through with the crucifixion and all that's going to be entailed in that. But he says, not my will, but your will be done in prayer to God. Not my will but your will be done. You're never going to know 
how much God wants you to give if your life is not fully surrendered to God's will. Money is, isn't just a side element of your life that can be handled separately. It's not just one aspect of your life. Let me say something here about this concept often shows up in sermons and teaching related to money, this concept of the tithe. The tithe, you may have heard of this if you've been around church for a while. Maybe you grew up in church, you heard people talk about a tithe. The tithe is a commonly referred to, it's a common ideal in Christian circles, even if it's not a common practice in Christian circles, of what it is that one should give. A tithe, just it's a it's a technical term that just means a tenth, right? So it doesn't mean portion, it means a tenth. So to give a tithe is to give a tenth of one's income. You can go back into uh, Genesis 14 to see the first example of a tithe. Abraham uh, has uh, uh, been delivered by God in kind of a rather miraculous way uh, in some uh, conflicts that he was in, some battles that he was in. And so he wants to honor God in this victory by giving a tithe or a tenth to this priest king named Melchizedek, who was the priest king of Jerusalem. And uh, so Abraham gives a tithe to the Lord, as it were, by giving it to this priest king, Melchizedek. So that's the first example of the tithe. We move on into the Old Testament law, and we see that uh, it would be customary for those who were uh, either farming or those who uh, were raising cattle or sheep or shepherds to, at the end of every season, to give a tithe of what uh, the produce was to the Lord. And what it meant giving it to the Lord is there was one particular tribe of the Israelites, there were 12 tribes, one tribe uh, named the Levites were given care over the tabernacle and then later the temple, which was like the center of Jewish worship. The other tribes had land allotted to them, but the Levites had no land. They didn't get land. What they got was care of the temple. But then how are the Levites supposed to survive if they're not farming, they're not raising sheep? How do they survive? They survive off the tithes of all the other tribes. So all the other tribes, they would do all the farming, they would do all the care, and then they would bring a tithe of what they had uh, worked or earned, and they would bring that, and they would give it to the Levites, and the Levites would live off of the tithe. So this practice was worked throughout the Old Testament. And then in New Testament times, the church has often uh, interpreted the tithe to the Levites as sort of a, a forerunner of a tithe to the New Testament church. And so this is where we get the concept of the tithe. Now, I'm not against uh, the idea of the tithe. I think it's a, there's a, some biblical precedent for it uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, giving a tithe has been the monthly practice of Jill and I, our whole married life. Uh, I think it extends even back before we were married. Uh, we were both doing that. And it's kind of the baseline for us. So I, I practice the tithe, right? And uh, so I'm not against it. Uh, and then we give our tithe, and we'll give above or beyond that as needs or occasions arise. And frankly, it would make my life a lot easier as your pastor if I just had some real clear New Testament text that said the tithe still continues and I could say to you all, how much should you give? Thus saith the Lord, you must tithe. And then we would just be all good. I could close in prayer and be on your own conscience and you'd have to figure it out and go from, from there, right? But the pattern of the New Testament 
And the giving call in the New Testament is deeper and fuller and more personal than the tithe. Tithing isn't wrong by any means, but it's not sufficient as an answer to the question, how much should I give? Go back to our rich young ruler in Luke 18. He was a very pious man, a very religious man. And so he was no doubt following all the Jewish laws related to the gifts and offerings. He was probably above and beyond the tithe, frankly, because if you kind of follow some of the Jewish laws, there's, sometimes it's more than just the tithe right, that we're to give. But tithing in its worst expression, in its worst expression, the tithe can be seen as a way of getting God off your back. And I think Jesus had his thumb on that rich young ruler, right? The rich young ruler was giving God the tithe, but he wasn't fully surrendered to God. You can be giving God a tithe and not be fully surrendered to him. But sometimes I think that we can think that way about tithing. So maybe you tithe. Maybe that's some of you here. Uh, maybe it's uh, some of you aspire to the tithe, right? But you can think about tithing in this way. As long as I'm tithing, I get to do what I want to do with the rest of my money. All right, if I give God his 10%, now I can get on with what I want to do with the rest of my money. Of course, you know, I shouldn't cheat or lie or use it for bad things, but it's pretty much my money to do with what I want to do because I've already bought God off with his 10%. That's not a good way to think about our finances. So every uh, year for my birthday, Jill makes me an apple pie. It's a tradition carried on from my mother. I don't know why pie became the thing, but I love apple pies, homemade apple pies. Don't go out and buy me a store-bought pie. I, I spurn your store-bought pies. But the homemade apple pie, I'm a big fan of the homemade apple pie. And uh, so Jill, well, every year, she makes me a homemade apple pie for my birthday. And uh, imagine that this past year, for my birthday, she had made the pie. And I get the pie. And I'm so happy about the pie. I section it out. I use it for breakfast. I like fruit pies for breakfast. Maybe that's you, right? So I'm so happy about my pie. But imagine that I was like, you know, Jill's been so good to be making me these pies, you know, all these 21 years of marriage. That's so nice of her. I should, I should give her, just in kind of in gratitude, I should give her a piece of pie, right? So I cut out a piece of pie. And Jill, thank you so much for like what you've done. And I appreciate it. Here's, have a piece of pie. And then she just stares at me. So then I think to myself, wow, maybe one pot, one piece isn't, like that's not sufficient to like show her, like she seems unhappy with me. Okay, well, here, you know, two pieces of pie. Does that, you know, does that make you happy? And then how much does she want? I mean, like, this pie is my pie, right? So, like, now I got to give, like, the whole pie back to her. Like, that didn't, well, that didn't make sense, right? Sometimes I think we're like that with what God gives us as our gift, right? We're like, oh, you know, that's so generous of God to give us his gift, and I feel good about that, and I should give something back to him just to show my appreciation. So, God, here's 5%. Here's 10%, you know, because 10% is biblical precedent. That's pretty good. Here's 10%. And God just stares at us. And we're like, what, what gives? Like, how much does he want from us, right? 
So we give them another 10% and another 10% and another 10%. We just keep staring at us. God doesn't want part of our pie. He wants the whole pie. That's what he's asking us to surrender to him. Have you surrendered everything that you own to the Lord? Imagine. Let's sit with that for just a second. Don't race past it. Think about how much you got in your retirement account. Think about how much you have in your bank account. Think about how much you have in the value of your home and equity. Take everything you've got, put it in a pile, and then bring that to the Lord and say, this is yours. Do with what you want with this money that you've given to me. Can you say that? Can you bring God the entire pie and say, take what you want? Can you pray with Jesus over your money as he did over his life? Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will with all this stuff that I have, but your will be done. Can you bring the whole entire pie to the Lord? I think this is why Jesus talks so much about money. Because it's the, gets to the core of our existence. It's how we live our lives. I mean, we can take certain aspects of our lives and kind of quarantine them. Right? We could take all of our entertainment choices, let's say, and give those to the Lord. And that would just kind of be our entertainment choices. But to give all of our money to the Lord, to surrender all of our money to the Lord, right? it's going to touch every single aspect of our present and every single aspect of our future. God may not take us up, as it were, on eating the whole pie, right? but we need to surrender the whole pie to God. We need to surrender our entire income to God, and that is surrendering our entire lives to God. That's the heart of the gospel. It's getting right to the nub of what the gospel is. It's laying down our lives into God's hands so that he can heal us, so that he can redeem us, care for us, and guide us. That's what it means to come to God and receive the benefits of the gospel. We must die to ourselves, Jesus said, so that we can live to God. We must hand over our old broken dead life to receive the new life from God. And part of what's being handed over to God is all of our finances. God isn't like, hand over your whole life and 10% of your finances. He's saying, hand over everything. Now, God, of course, can decide what he wants to do when we fully surrender all of our lives, including our finances, to him. He may ask of us what he asks of the rich young ruler. He may ask of us what he asked of Zacchaeus or Barnabas or what he would have asked of Ananias and Sapphira. One other example that I didn't go to, but perhaps this is comforting to you, the the widow who gives just the mite, the two copper coins. It's all she gave, right? But that's all that God wanted from her. 
Right? You may not have much to give. Right? It doesn't matter how much you have to give. God wants your life. He wants all of it surrendered to him. And then he'll let you know what it is that you should be doing with your money. But we have to have a posture of full surrender to God. So if you're a Christian here this morning, let me just say to you, don't hold back your money from God. Don't try to buy him off. God loves you. He made you. He knows what's best for you. And if you surrender all that you have to him, he's going to do right by you, right? right? If, I, if I surrender all that I have to God, I, I don't have to worry that like, God's going to just consume it all and leave me destitute. Right? Like God knows what I need. This is what we looked at last week, right? He knows what I need. He's taking care of me. He has my best interest in mind. Right? And, and he knows better what to do with all that I own than I know what to do with all that I own. Right? So if I bring everything that I have to him, all my finances, say, Lord, just guide me and direct me. Let me know what you want to be done with all of this stuff. He's going to answer that question out of a posture of a loving father who cares for me. He'll do that for you as well. If you're not a Christian this morning, but you're trying to think about, like, well, what does it mean to be a Christian and what's involved in that, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Like the rich young ruler. God doesn't want your money, right? He's not after your money. God isn't bankrupt and trying to, like, make a living, right? That's why he's not looking for converts. God wants you. He wants you to bring your whole self everything that you are, everything that you own, all your hopes, all of your dreams, everything, to bring that to him, lay it at his feet, and let him make you new, to turn over the sovereignty of your life to God as the true sovereign one who knows best for his creation, to give yourself fully to him. God will do right by you if you give yourself to him and he speaks words of blessing into your life through his son, Jesus Christ. So the first thing we need to do, the first step that we need to take if we're going to figure out how God wants us to use our money is we need to surrender our lives fully to God. Second step, we need to pray and ask the Lord what he wants from us. We need to ask. Jesus' example all throughout the Gospels teaches us that we should give to God what God asks of us. Jesus' philanthropic lifestyle wasn't driven by the needs of those around him. Right? It wasn't just like, well, whatever needs show up in my, perv- my mirror, you know, my, my, my purview, that's what I got to meet. No, that's not how Jesus made his decisions. Right? He submitted himself fully to God, and then he did what God asked him to do. Right? So you need to ask God and know what God wants from you. Jesus surrendered all of his resources to God and then gave away as much of himself as God asked of him. Sometimes for Jesus, that meant pausing in his busy schedule to meet a need. Sometimes for Jesus, that meant walking away from needs and opportunities. Don't be afraid to ask God what he wants you to do with your money. And don't assume that you already know the answer. Many of us, of course, though, we get hung up on this step because we don't really want to know what God wants us to do with our money. We just have this vague sense we should be tithing. 
and then we've given God the tithe, and we're afraid of what he might say beyond that. Maybe God doesn't even want a tithe from you. Maybe he's got less in mind than the number you have in your head. Maybe it's a bigger number. We don't know what God's going to say to us, but we're afraid to ask because we're afraid he's going to take the whole pie. The tithe is a good biblical precedent, but it's not sufficient as an alternative to asking God what he wants from you. You got to ask if you want to know. I don't know what he's going to ask of you. Maybe he's going to ask for everything, like he did for the rich young ruler. He's going to want the whole pie. He's going to eat the whole pie. He's going to invite you into a journey of deep faith to trust him in the midst of that request. Maybe he's going to simply ask you for just a little slice, just the widow's mite. It's all he's going to ask for from you. I don't know, but I do know that he loves you and that whatever he asks from you is going to be motivated by love. He's wise and he loves you. And so if he asks something from you, rest in the confidence that that request is coming from one who knows better than you and who loves deeper than you. He wants your best interest, right? He's not just using you to care for other people. You're the object of his affection too. And so if you ask him what he wants you to do, he's going to answer it for your best interest, just like the rest of the world around us, right? So don't be afraid to ask him. And I would say on that request, ask him regularly, not just once, right? Periodically check in. Lord, is there anything you want me to be doing different with my money? Or, Lord, this thing has just appeared before me, this request. Do you want me to step in and meet that? Lord, help me to know and to discern your will as to what you want from me and for me. All right, so have your life fully surrendered to the Lord, right? And then pray regularly and ask the Lord what he wants from you. I think those are the two steps that you can take to get you pointed in the right direction. Let me close with some pastoral advice here. I don't have a specific chapter and verse to give you, but I can tell you what I've found to be true in my own life. Hopefully, it can be helpful for you. My pastoral advice for you is to work toward giving a tithe and then stay open-handed. Now, some of you maybe are already at the tithe, right? But the tithe, uh, some of you, uh, you're, not, you're not in danger of the rich young ruler of tithing and then not being fully surrendered to God. You haven't even like started the journey toward the tithe in any way, right? And that's fine. But let me just say, if you're not sure what the Lord wants from you, why don't you work towards the tithe? It's not an absolute fixed thing in the New Testament, but I would say work towards the tithe. There's a good model for it. There's a good precedent for it. I think here's where the tithe can be helpful. The tithe can be helpful because it's a sufficient amount of money to help you remember the connection between God and your finances, right? Like when you write the tithe check to wherever it's going every week or once a month, it forces you to remember that God is involved in your finances, right? The the regularity of a tithe or some sort of gift working towards a tithe, uh, that helps you keep God in the focus in your finances. And a tithe, I think, is um, it's a significant amount of money, 
right? Some of you are thinking, right, like some of you are tithing already, which is great, God bless you. Some of you feel like you should be tithing, you haven't got there, but you need to pray about that, right, and figure out what the Lord wants from you. Some of you haven't even ever thought about giving any money. And when you think about 10% of my income, you're like, I, it's impossible. I'd have to sell my house, right? So that's why you work towards something, right? You work towards something. I don't know exactly, again, what the Lord is asking of you, but I think to get to the place where you're tithing is probably a good, a good thing. But then I would say work towards the tithe, right? But stay open-handed, right? Stay open-handed. Along the way, stay open-handed as you're working towards the tithe. If you've got to the tithe, stay open-handed. Who knows what God, his needs, the needs may be brought into your life that he's going to want you to meet, right? But stay fully surrendered to the Lord and stay uh, constantly in prayer and asking him what it is that he wants from you and your finances. So my pastoral advice uh, for you is to work towards the tithe uh, as you're able. Don't feel shackled to it. Don't feel burdened. Uh, to it. Stay fully surrendered to the Lord. Be prayerful. Work towards the tithe and then stay open-handed with uh, the needs that the Lord presents before you and follow as the Spirit leads. All right? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that you sent Christ and uh, you have given us uh, the security of knowing that our needs are cared for in him. We want to be generous in response to your generosity. It can be hard to know in each individual instance as to what it is that you uh, want us to do. Help us, Lord, to stay fully surrendered to you in all things. And help us, Lord, as well, to be willing to come to you and ask what it is that you want from us. And then give us a spirit of faith and obedience to follow through when you make it clear to us what you're asking of us. Lord, I pray for folks here who maybe have not yet sorted out their relationship uh, with money, and they're trying to just even begin to to get their head around what it is that you'd ask of them. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't get so fixated on money that it distracts them from the deeper issue of whether their lives are wholly surrendered to you. God, help us each here to surrender our lives fully to you and then just follow wherever you lead in any point of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.